Welcome to episode 124 of The Recovery Show. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today's episode of The Recovery Show is an open talk by Randy Kay. I listened to this open talk recently and some of the things that he had to say really resonated with me. In particular, I connected with his description of his own addiction because I have found that in my life as well. And maybe you can identify with it when you listen to Randy. So without any further comment, here's Randy. Thank you uh, so much, Jenny, for those kind words. Um, it's great to be here at the District 19 Al-Anon Day. Um, although I was kind of laughing with some of the people beforehand, it just kind of reminded me of the Hunger Games a little bit. It's like, you know, like people of District 19, I give you <laughs> Al-Anon Day. Although Tara reminded me that there is no District 19 in Hunger Games. So uh, um, anyway, with that being said, my name is Randy. And uh, and I really am uh, I'm so grateful for, for Jenny for asking me to do this and for the opportunity to speak. I'm honored that you'd ask me to be here today. So thank you very, very much. Um, uh, sometimes I, sometimes I wonder just how I ended up here in Al-Anon. Um, my parents weren't alcoholics. Um, I mean, they'd, they'd have a drink once in a while, um, but I, I don't think I've ever even seen them drunk, to be honest with you. Um, my sister's not an alcoholic. Uh, my friends, I mean, other than this one buddy of mine who, like, just recently, like in the last couple of years, came out as, alco- as alcoholic and got himself into AA, I don't think I even have any friends who are alcoholics. Um, I mean, other than the, you know, the double winners I've gotten to know in the program. Um, my friends from high school and college, I mean, we, you know, we drink and, and we party and, I mean, yeah, sometimes we get drunk. I mean, I can, I can still remember a couple good games of quarters. Um, you know, I remember the game, you know, where you... You, know, you watch the movie and you drink every time a certain word is said. But, but I mean, I'm not an alcoholic. And, and as far as I know, none of my friends are alcoholics either. Um, the only person in my life growing up who was an alcoholic was my grandfather. And, and I'll, I'll get to him a little bit later. But, you know, truth be told, I wasn't around the old man that much. And, and, and I don't remember being affected or, you know, impacted by his drinking in any kind of direct way. You know, so I didn't, I didn't grow up with active drinking, like, directly in my face, like so many of you guys did. You know, and I don't have any of the stories that you, you read about in the literature, and you hear about at meetings, and, you know, growing up in the emotionally or even physically abusive alcoholic home. It just, it just wasn't my story. Now... I did marry a woman who turned out to be an alcoholic, and I guess 
technically she's my third tradition admission ticket in Al-Anon. Um, but, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest with you guys, I don't remember ever being bothered by her active drinking. And I, I know that may sound weird to a lot of you, and I know it bucks the reason why most people perhaps come into Al-Anon, but I, I didn't think much of her drinking. You know, I, I'm not even sure I even understood what alcoholism was. I mean, if you had, if you had asked me, what's an alcoholic, I would have said it's, it's, you know, it's the homeless wino who lives on the corner. Right? You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's Nicolas Cage in the movie Leaving Las Vegas. You know, it's, it's the guy whose, whose life is, is a complete and utter mess. You know, my wife, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess you'd consider her like a high bottom drunk. I mean, she never lost her job. She never was out on the street or anything like that. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't think she was an alcoholic. Even though I've learned in this program that actually she and I have the classic alcoholic, codependent Al-Anon relationship. You know, I, I, can, I can still remember some times like, um, like when we'd visit people and she'd like pester me to make sure there was alcohol there when, when we arrived. And I, being the people-pleasing fixer that I am, would of course make sure that there was. And, you know, like I, we, I remember like, you know, flying in to see my parents and I'd call my dad and I'd be like, hey dad, you know, we're going to be landing at seven o'clock tonight, can you make sure there's a bottle of wine there? And he would say, yeah, sure, but but why? And I would say, well, you know, Dad, it's going to be a long flight from Los Angeles, where we live, to Philadelphia, and you know, we'll need something to sort of take the edge off and relax. Now, look, I, I love a good glass of wine as much as the next person, but I didn't need that. You know, my wife was the one that did. I just kind of covered for her. But, again, I didn't think she was an alcoholic. I just thought she was... You know, a little demanding, that's all, you know? Like, I mean, you know, I, I, I thought she was a woman that knew what she wanted. You know, it just happened to be that that was martinis and cosmopolitans a lot of the time, you know? But, but like, here's the thing, like, I thought that made her Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City, not an alcoholic. Ah. And I'll tell you guys something that may sound even more weird to a lot of you, and that's that I've struggled more with my wife's sobriety than I ever did when she was actively drinking. And the reason why is because when she was actively drinking, I got to play certain roles that my ego loves playing. Like, for instance, I got to play the role of, of Savior, who saves her from herself. And I love playing the role of Savior. I mean, it makes me feel needed and important and necessary. Um, I remember one time we were at a, uh, at a work function of my wife's, and she got, like, wasted. I mean, she was plowed. And, um, and I remember thinking to myself that if we stayed there much longer, she was going to say something or do something in front of either a coworker or even her boss that was probably not going to turn out well for her. And like Superman saving the day, I swooped in there and whisked her out of there. And man, I felt so needed and, and so smugly superior to my wife who was intoxicated. You know, when my wife was drinking, I got to play the role of victim. I love playing the victim. 
I mean, don't you guys, you know? Well, of course you do. You're sick as I am. That's why you're here. Um, and I'm telling you, and, and, I am, and I'm good at it, too. Oh, my gosh. I have this, like, little joke with myself that if I, if playing the victim were like playing the violin, I'm a virtuoso. I mean, I am, I am good. I'm serious. Um, oh, man. I, I, remember, I remember one time we were at a, uh, a dinner party that was hosted by a business contact of mine at his home. And this guy was an important contact. Guy gave me a lot of business. And my wife proceeded to fall to get drunk and pass out at the table. Now, that may sound bad to a lot of you, but secretly I loved it because it gave me the chance to play the victim. Because, like, once we got home, I put on my whiny voice, and I was like, oh, man, you... You totally let me down tonight. You know, you never step up for me. You're always letting me down. Wah, wah, wah. And I, I use guilt as a form of control. I use guilt as a form of currency. See, because after I got to make my wife feel sufficiently bad about the way she acted, well, then she owed me. And then I can control her. And I am I'm a master manipulator when it comes to using guilt. But, but when my wife got sober and got into AA, which was like a year and a half into our marriage, well, all of a sudden I couldn't do that stuff anymore. You know, when my wife started taking responsibility for herself, she didn't need me to caretake her anymore. See, I still wanted to be Superman, only Lois Lane didn't need saving anymore. And if Superman doesn't have anybody to save, well, then what's the point? What's his purpose? You know, when my wife stopped acting inappropriately, I had nothing I could play the victim over anymore. And how am I going to control her then? And as crazy as it may sound to those of you who have and still do struggle with someone else's drinking, there was a part of me, a big part of me, that actually missed my wife's active drinking. And so there was never a moment in my life when I was bothered by anybody's active drinking. There was never a moment in my life when I said to myself, oh my gosh, this person's drinking is ruining everything. How do I get him or her to stop? And, um, <laughs> and I was thinking about how Al-Anon cool I would be if I could just get up here and tell you about how I was beaten by my alcoholic father and molested by my alcoholic uncle and taken advantage of by my alcoholic wife. But I, I can't. It's not my story. And there's a fear in me that pops up from time to time that maybe I don't really belong in Al-Anon and that I don't deserve all the wonderful things that it has to offer. You know, like I'm some kind of fraud who's fooled all of you into allowing me into your program. And yet, and yet, I know to my very core that this is where I belong. And I know it for a couple reasons. One, I mean, I've learned that, that drinking, that the, the actual substance of alcohol is really only a part of alcoholism. I mean, it's the symptom. And that the hallmark of alcoholism is a spiritual illness that just eats away at our souls. And I can tell you before coming into this program that I was very spiritually sick. And I learned through working the steps that that sickness started to a large extent with my alcoholic grandfather. And it got passed down to my mom, who's like an untreated Alan onto like the nth degree. And that got passed down to me. 
So that's one way I know. But I think the second reason is the biggest. I know I belong in this program because of the results. I mean, because of the way it has changed my life. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally altered my whole belief system. I mean, deep-seated beliefs about myself, my self-worth, others, my relationship to others, God, the universe, my role in it. It's just like turned it on its head. And I can tell you, um, from having the work, having worked the 12 steps and practicing the principles of those steps in all my affairs, I've had the, the spiritual awakening that's promised in step 12, you know? So how, how can Al-Anon not be the right place for me when it's changed me so profoundly? Um, now let me be clear. I, I really want to be clear about something. I have had a spiritual awakening, not this like transition into this like permanent state of spiritual bliss. I, I mean, I'm telling you, like, like Jenny was saying, I can revert back to old habits and behaviors like that. I can get triggered like that. Um, I got a long way to go in this program. Um, I think I probably always will. I think it's kind of the way it's designed. But I can tell you that I have had sustained periods of serenity that are a direct result of a spiritual connection that I would not have had but for this program. So I really, really am grateful to be here. Um, so let me just kind of, let me just start back at the beginning of my life. Um, take the next nine hours to sort of, um, walk you, th- oh, was that too long? Um, sort of, um, just briefly walk you through like the early stages of my life. And I really just want, kind of want to get to how I got, got to Al-Anon and how Al-Anon's changed my life. Um, my Al-Anon story actually begins a couple years before I was born. Um, my father's a good man. He was a good dad. Um, he was a good provider. He was a doctor. Um, my mom was a teacher. My biological mom was a teacher. And I, I found out years later through my sister, who had run into someone who used to know her, that she was this kind, empathetic, intelligent, independent woman. But about two years before I was born, my parents were at a stoplight, and um, a drunk driver plowed into them at a high rate of speed. Um, The driver, incidentally, was killed. He went through his own windshield. Um, My parents obviously survived, but they were badly injured. And my mom got the worst of it, because in addition to her physical injuries, she suffered some pretty significant brain damage as well, and, and it changed her. I mean, she was no longer the independent, intelligent woman that I spoke of. She was, um, she became like a petulant child, really. It was, um, it was very sad. And, you know, when, when you have a relationship and one of the parties changes so drastically, it affects the relationship and things slowly deteriorated between, um, between my parents. Um, and this is, this is kind of the funny part is, so they go see this, this, uh, this marriage counselor or therapist or something. And the funny thing is, if this guy had been even like halfway competent and given them even marginally sound advice, I wouldn't be here today. But what he tells them, he says, okay, so you guys are having marital problems. Well, here's what you need to do. Have kids. Because that's going to solve everything for you. Um, 
Strangely, though, it didn't. Um, and uh, I know, go figure. Um, and so things deteriorated, and they, they eventually got a divorce. Um, my father was really the only one sort of fit enough to care for two kids, so my father got full custody. But we would still visit my mom on weekends. And I remember, like, in addition to sort of just the the general bizarre behavior on her on her part, I remember these angry outbursts that she would have. And, I, and there was one time in particular... Um, my father had started dating again, and, and it used to just drive my mom nuts. She'd just get so mad. And there was this one occasion she said to me, I was about like five years old, and she said, you know what, Randy, I'm going to take a gun, and I'm going to shoot your father and his girlfriend. And I'm telling you, that just like set me off the edge. I mean, I, I got back to my father's house, and I was just inconsolable. I was just bawling, and I wouldn't stop. And I remember I sat at the front window of my dad's house, standing guard, you know, making sure that my mom didn't come and carry out this threat that just seemed so real to me. And no matter what my dad did, he couldn't pull me away from that window. I was just going to sit there all night standing guard. And I don't want to be too melodramatic about this, but, but that image of me sitting at the window, standing guard, is really a metaphor for how I've lived much of my life. I mean, even as an adult, I walk around and I'm scared. I worry about everything. I'm always waiting for the proverbial other shoe to drop. I'm always keeping an eye out for that boogeyman that I just know is around the corner. And, and this was reinforced by my parents who used to tell me that like fear is good. Fear keeps you on your toes. Fear equals vigilance. Smart people are afraid because smart people know that there's danger out there and they'll be prepared for it when it comes. And so I lived most of my life on high alert, you know, constantly sitting at the window, standing guard for most of my life. Um, so anyway, after uh, not long after this incident, I don't even remember how it happened. I stopped visiting my, my mom and my sister stopped visiting shortly thereafter and Neither of us have uh, seen her ever since. We've had no contact with her. It's been almost 40 years. I, I don't even know if she's alive or dead. It's, it's kind of weird. Um, meanwhile, though, my father remarried this woman, Sharon. And, um, you know, and with me being so young and with my biological mom being out of the picture, she kind of became my mom. She's the one with the alcoholic father who kind of became my grandma, grandfather. And like I said, she's an untreated Al-Anon with all the hallmarks of the disease. Um, I don't know about you guys, but in my book, there is nothing worse than an untreated Al-Anon. I'm serious. Like, if you, if you gave me a choice of being in a room alone with an alcoholic or an untreated Al-Anon, I will choose the alcoholic seven days a week and twice on Sunday. I mean, at least the, at least the alcoholic's fun. <laughs> There was nothing fun about my mom. Um, like I said, man, she had all the hallmarks of the disease, like the, the, the narcissistic victimhood, you know, it was always everybody else's fault. She was always miserable and you couldn't do enough for her. But yet she'd walk around in public and just pretend she was happy and affable and then be angry behind closed doors. You know, the, the belief that it's more important how you look and how people perceive you than it is how you really feel inside. Um, the gossiping, 
you know, the tearing down of other people behind their backs so that maybe you can feel better about yourselves. Um, the resentments. Oh, my God, the resentments. I mean, these were like, these were the real deal resentments. These were like heavy-duty, industrial strength resentments. I mean, these were, you don't talk, you don't speak to your own sister for 15 years because of something she said type of resentments. I mean, these were, these were the, these were the real deal. Um, but you know, listen, I, I bring up my mom not to, not to rail on her, not to take her inventory, because then I'm just being the victim again myself. I, I, I've learned in this program that she was spiritually sick herself, you know, um, and she didn't have any other tools for, she didn't have the tools for living her life any other way. You know, as it, as it is said in our book, From Survival to Recovery, hurt people hurt people. And she was hurt herself by growing up with, with an alcoholic father. So, so again, I, I, don't, I don't bring her up to, to, to rail on her to take her inventory. I bring her up to make the point that no matter how much I hated being on the receiving end of all that junk, that's who I became. And that's what I did to other people. You know, it's like you, you think that if you'd have enough resentments directed at you that you wouldn't direct them at other people, but that's exactly what I did. And I became, like my mom, I became the consummate victim. And like my mom, it was everybody else's fault for why things didn't work out the way, the way I wanted them to. And like my mom, I believe that I was just the victim of other people just not treating me right and not living up to my expectations. You know? Um, and I, uh, I, that's one of the ways I had sort of become my mom, basically. I had, I had, you know, when, if you slighted me, well, of course I'm going to get resentful. I mean, the, what else do you do? That's just what you do. What, what am I going to do? Like, forgive? You know, like, try to see the other person as perhaps spiritually sick like me? No, that's not part of our, that's not part of what you do, you know? So that was one of the ways that the disease of alcoholism affected me. It got passed down from my mom to me. But I think the biggest way that the disease of alcoholism affected me is just this, this complete absence of any kind of internal self-esteem. Um, like, you know how we say in the program, I think a lot of people, we shared this morning in the workshops, you know how we're like, we're, we're, we're children of God and people of worth and that we're enough just because of who we are. I mean, that was, that was foreign to me before I came into Al-Anon. And so I became the guy who hustled for his self-esteem. You know, like, some people hustle for money, some people hustle for drugs. I hustled for my self-esteem. I'm the guy who needed to generate self-esteem by manipulating and controlling and arranging the circumstances around me so that maybe if they lined up just the right way, then I could tell myself that, I, that I, I'm worthy of love. You know, if I just got that job, if I just got that cute girlfriend, if I, if I just got enough people to like me, if I just got enough approval, well, then maybe I can feel okay about myself. And, of course, eventually it fades away, and i got to conjure up a whole new set of circumstances to make myself feel okay. And if there's, if there's one sort of central fact that I've learned about myself through some real deep inventory work in this program, it's that I am... Above all else, an addict. Not of alcohol, not of drugs, 
not of an actual chemical substance, but, but of people and, and the positive reactions I could get from people, of, of success, of prestige, of, of applause. You know, I think a lot of times when we think of addiction, we think of an actual substance, but I define it more broadly. I think it's just needing anything outside of yourself in order to feel okay. See, I have this God-sized hole in me, and I don't know how to fill it internally. So I just seek everything outside of myself to fill it. And like any addict, I will go to any lengths to get my fix. I will say yes when I mean no. I will bend over backwards, twisting myself into, into being the person you want me to be. I will give of myself until there's nothing left, just so people can walk around and say, wow, that Randy sure is an awesome guy. You know? And here's the insidious thing about my disease, is that I don't even know I'm doing it. You know, I heard this one speaker say, and this is so true for me, that the greatest trick the ego ever pulls is convincing you it's not even there. See, I thought I was just being nice. I never bothered to look at, I, I looked at the, the, the outside of my actions, and they were all nice, and I was complimenting people and doing things for people. And I just told myself that I was just being a good guy. But that's like, that's bunk. It's, it's BS. You know, that's like the legitimate business being used as a front for the criminal enterprise that's going on in the back. You know, I'm telling myself that I'm just being nice for the good of mankind, but nothing could be further from the truth. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it for me. I'm using you. I'm manipulating you because I need to get a certain reaction out of you in order to feel good about myself. That's why I always, I, I love the term people pleasing. It's, it's, it's almost a misnomer. It's, it's a euphemism for just manipulation of people, you know? And here's the funny thing. It worked. Oh my God. When, like, when I could get people to love me and applaud me, and when I can achieve something that, that my ego thinks is a big deal, man, it's like heroin to me. I mean, it's like, like opening up my arm and putting the needle in, and it's like, ah. Oh, you like me. I'm okay. You know? Um, you know, I, I like to go to um, a lot of open AA meetings. And one of the things I've heard from several of the speakers is that when they drank, when the liquor went down their throat and took its effect, all the fear went away. All that fear of just not being enough. See, I get that. That's exactly how I feel when I get my fill of applause and approval and, and people liking me, you know. But here's the thing. Like any drug, it dissipates, and i got to get my new fix. And the next time, the, the, the dose has to be even bigger. So next time, it's not enough that 10 people like me. Now I need 15 people to like me. And it's not enough that you like me this much. Now I need you to love, to love me even more. You know, And it's not enough that I, I accomplish this, now I need to accomplish that. And the bar was always in front of me. And my need for all this stuff just eventually became insatiable. And my pursuit of it made my life unmanageable. And, and so it was through most of my adult life. It was just one thing after another that I could put between me and myself. Just one thing after another that I could use to, to artificially manufacture self-esteem. And it didn't matter what it was. I mean, in some cases, it was filling my life with a lot of friends who weren't even necessarily friends. They were just people who liked me because I 
turn myself into the person they want me to be. In other cases, it was being addicted to actual people. Like I had this one relationship with this woman, and I was addicted to her. She wasn't even an alcoholic, but it was like the classic codependent relationship. Um, in other cases, it was professional success. It varied. But the point was, I was never without something that I could use outside of me to validate myself. And as long as I had that, as long as I had something, I never needed to acknowledge the whole that was emblazoned there as a result of the disease of alcoholism. You know, you know it's funny. I, I heard a speaker once say this, and it's, and it's so true for me. My ego is like an identity thief. It's, it's like a hacker that sneaks into my life and learns all my personal data and then uses it against me to decide whether or not I'm allowed to like myself or whether I'm just a kind of a big piece of crap. Like, it knows how many people were nice to me in a given day. It knows how many compliments I got. It knows how many Christmas parties I was invited to. It knows how many likes I got on that photograph that I posted on Facebook, you know? It knows the dollar figure in my bank account, and it uses all of that data as a barometer for my self-worth. So, you know, I needed Alan on. I really did. And the funny thing was, my, my wife, who had been in AA for a few years, knew I needed it long before I did, and she kind of encouraged me to, me to go. Um, but of course, I didn't think I needed to go. I mean, I'm not the alcoholic. Why do I need the 12 steps stuff for, you know? But I went, and um, I did a brief stint in Al-Anon, but, um, but it didn't take. Um, actually, let me, let me be accurate. I didn't commit myself to it. I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't work the steps. I went to a meeting like once a week or once every other week, and I got out of it what I put into it, which was little, you know? Um, you know, I approached Al-Anon the way, like, I, I, I approached it from the perspective of, well, let's see what kind of knowledge I can learn. You know, maybe I can even parrot some of it back at the next cocktail party and, and impress people with it, you know? So, like, I approached Al-Anon the way you would, like, taking a French class. That was, that was, and, and again, I got very, li- you know, sort of little out of it, um, you know? Um, but I'll tell you what, I think what it, looking back, what had happened was I hadn't hit my bottom yet. My career, which was kind of like my drug du jour, was still doing great. I had all the prestige and attention I needed, and I didn't need Al-Anon, you know? But eventually I hit my bottom. And, um, and again, it, it, it wasn't directly fueled by alcohol. There was no major catastrophe. Nobody lost their lives. I didn't lose my home. And in fact, when I tell you what my bottom is, you know, some of you may scratch your head and say, that's your bottom? Um, basically, I'll tell you what happened. We, um, my wife got a job here in Atlanta. We were living in Los Angeles at the time. My wife got a job here in Atlanta. She asked me if we would move here. I reluctantly agreed. But because my business, which again was kind of that my drug of, of choice for the moment, because it was based back in Los Angeles, I had to give a lot of it up. And then on top of it, when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. So there was nobody to give me the attention and, you know, applause that I so desperately need. Um, and that was my bottom. I know, I, I mean, some of you probably like shaking your heads, but to me, it felt like a bottom. For the first time in my life, I felt empty. For the first time in my life, it felt like someone had turned the juice off, 
you know? And I was without that something that I could use to sort of fill the hole. And so for the first time, I had to address that hole. And it hurt. And so I went back to Al-Anon. And, um, you know, I wish I could tell you that I knew if this time, if I committed myself, that Al-Anon was going to be all that in a bag of chips. I, but I, that wasn't the case. I went back because I had nowhere else to go. You know, and I didn't know what else to do. It was like I was in this horror movie, and I'm being chased by this axe murderer, and I'm, and I'm running down the block, trying each house, looking for help, and all the doors are locked, and the last house on the block is Al-Anon, and the door was unlocked. So that's why I went back, you know. But thank heavens I did, because um, this time I did it right. I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. And, um, and I've been all in ever since. And it's been, it's been transformative. Um, I can tell you this for sure that the, the most important thing in my life today is my spiritual condition. I mean, everything else flows from it. Um, you know, my ability to be a good father, a good husband, a good son, a good friend, even a good worker, it all flows from my spiritual condition. You know, as someone once said, it, it doesn't matter how good it is out there. If it ain't no good in here, it ain't no good. And that's the way I kind of live my life. Um, so I've, I've been all in ever, ever since. Um, you know, we, we talk in this program about the gift of desperation. And, and I can tell you from my experience, it really, really is a gift. Um, I think what, what God did when I hit my bottom was he, he took away from me what needed to be taken away at just the right time. And for all my kicking and screaming and anger and fear that went along with it, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it, it brought me back to Al-Anon. It, not back to, yeah, it brought me back to Al-Anon and had me do it for real. Um, I th- actually, I think what, what God really did, at the risk of, of sounding too spiritual, because we wouldn't want that, right? Um, is that I think what God did is I think he brought me back to him. Um, I'd been estranged from God. You know, I thought I was too smart for God in my own arrogance. You know, other people, well, they might need God, but not me. Um, it's not that I was an atheist, because frankly, I think being an atheist just takes too much work and effort to sort of dogmatically get down with the idea that there is no God. I just didn't think about God. I just didn't care about God. I just didn't need God. I already had a God. It was me, you know, and my ability to get things done and and manage my own life. Um, And I think what, what my bottom was, was it was the slap in the face with the cold, hard reality that any power I have is finite and temporal. And with that realization, I needed to find a power that was infinite. And, uh, and as they say, that one is God. May you find him now. And so, you know, with God, I, like, by taking away what needed to be taken away and forcing me to face my own powerlessness, I think what God was doing was just bringing me home, back to him, like the prodigal son. Um, hence, steps one and two. You know, and and I think God keeps doing. I think God keeps taking things away from me. You know, I was sharing earlier in one of the in one of the uh, workshops that I think this program it's not about adding anything; it's about subtraction. 
It's about, you know, it's a, it's a process of uncovering, discovering, and discarding. Um, and I think that's what God does is God helps me discard all the things that stand in the way of my relationship with him. And, um, and I'll actually give you a funny story. I actually told this, um, the last time I told my story a couple, uh, a couple of uh, months ago. It was this real light bulb moment. Um, and it involves my dog, Lila. And um, just real briefly, my, my Lila loves chewing sticks. And it had become a problem for her. I mean, she had cracked like a bunch of teeth. She had kept like splinters in her gums and her gums got infected. And she, she had to have like major dental surgery. She had to have like three or four teeth removed. It was like a whole thing. So about two months ago, I'm outside with her, and I see she's got another stick in her mouth. And I take the stick away. And you should have seen the look on her face. It was like, oh, I, I love that stick. That stick was so good. Why would you take that stick away from me? And I swear it melted my heart. And what I wished at that moment was I wish I could speak dog. Because I would, I would have loved to have said to her, Lila, um, in dog, um, <laughs> I took this stick away because I love you, you know, because this stick is not good for you right now. And I'm taking it away because it's what's best for you. And if you just, I know you don't understand, but if you just trust me, just know that I have your best interests here. And all of a sudden, as I'm thinking this, oh, my God, the the light bulb went off. That's what God does for me. God takes away my stick. You know, I'm the dog in the in the in the scenario, you know, and. And I think, like, I know what's best. I think that stick is really, really what I need right now. And it's so good. And I so don't want to part with it. But God takes it away because it's what's, it's what's best for me, you know. And all I got to do is trust. Um, and that, and that God has my back, you know, and he has my best interest. Um, so anyway, let me, let me, um, let me, say a couple of the, the main ways Al-Anon has really changed my life. I mean, I could list a hundred, and they're all kind of interrelated. Let me just make sure I'm good with time here. Okay. Um, and they're all, they're all kind of interrelated. But let me just kind of hit a, a couple major ones. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about self-esteem. And I think one of the ways, one of the main ways this program has, has helped me so much is by giving me a mechanism for finding self-esteem from within. And it starts with that connection with God. And I believe that, this is, this is my belief, that deep down, all we really want is just to do God's will. And that was kind of foreign to me, because like when I first got in the program, and again, I sort of, I wasn't close with God. I had to sort of get, get close, and I was a little nervous. And the idea of God's will just had this image of me being a monk, you know, and, 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 and it just sounded like, it just sounded like not very fun. And I was so afraid that if I made this covenant in step three, that I was going to get gypped and I was going to get the short end of the stick, you know? Um, but no, but I think what, what it, what I think what, what God's will for us is, is to, is to be of service, but in the unique way that God created each of us, you know, in the way that just feels right. Like, you know, that way that, that, just, you, you know, you just feel this expansive energy and you just feel so good being of service in that, in that sort of way that's really, really unique to you. That's what I, I think, that's what I think it is for me. That's what I think God wants for me. And with that comes freedom. Because see, when I'm, 
instead of making it about your reactions and whether you like me and how you're, you know, whether you're going to thank me for what I'm going to do for you and what kind of applause I get, instead of making my self-esteem about that, I get to make it about just the action I take. I get to my say, say to myself that, you know what, I'm, I'm beautiful because of this act of service that, I, that I'm taking. Regardless of what anybody thinks about it, how anybody responds to it, regardless of when he, whether anybody even knows about it. And there's a tremendous freedom in basing my self-esteem just on my act of spreading God's light in my own, in my own way. You know, the problem is when my ego comes back and I'm back to needing prestige and applause and attention, that's when I'm no longer free again. That's when I'm back in the bondage of self. Um, so, you know, so Al-Anon has given me this beautiful mechanism. It's, it's, it's like, like I said, it, it's reshaped my beliefs. And, it, and, and that one of the key beliefs that it's reshaped is that I can find self-esteem just by being a an agent of God, a servant of God in the way that he created me. And it's just oh, it's so freeing when I'm, when I'm there. Um, so that's one way. The other main way this program has helped me is it's, it's helped me be awake in my own life. Um, you know, before I came into this program, I was asleep. I slept walk through most of my life. I mean, like I was saying, you know, I would take these people-pleasing actions, and I never questioned them. I just thought they were nice actions. I never looked below the surface. So I never took any kind of inventory whatsoever. I never looked at myself. I just was, I was unconscious through most of my life. And what, and again, I think this program for me is about being awake in my life. Um, you know, it's, I, I love with Joy's um, workshop today about, um, listing all the tools of the program. And there were a lot of, like, wonderful tools that, that, that we listed. But I do think that, that they're tools. Like, I, I'm not, I, I think the program is won and lost in the trenches of our everyday life. In all those sort of seemingly unimportant moments that we get throughout our day, I think it's in those little moments that we almost could miss, that we get to make a decision. Do we go back to the way we used to be, or do we practice a new way that's that's healthy? And I think that's where the program really is for me. It's that it's in the trenches of those little moments, and I get all these little opportunities throughout the day to decide: Am I going to take an action here that's in ego, and that's you know reinforcing the old ways, or am I going to or am I going to sort of take an action that's going to reinforce the, the the new ways? But in order for that to happen, I got to be awake in my life. Because the problem is, my default mechanism is still to act in my sickness. You know, my default mechanism, if, if, I, if I'm taking an action, is to people please. And if I am unconscious, that's what I will do. And so what Al-Anon's taught me, what you all taught me, is that before I take an action, I get to sort of do like a little mini inventory. And I get to ask myself, what is the motivation behind this action? Am I taking it? for the purpose of getting applause and approval and all that? And if the answer is yes, then maybe it's not an action I want to take because it's just going to reinforce the old. But if the answer is yes, or, or the answer is like no, that it's, I'm, I'm doing it just for the sake of doing it and that I would take this action even if no, nobody knew about it, then it's probably an action I, I want to take. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example, and I'll, and I'll, I'll close up. Um, I... 
I was back out in Los Angeles um, about a month ago, and I was visiting a friend, that, that friend who actually had just gotten to AA, and I was, um, was going to give him a couple of Al-Anon and AA speaker CDs. And before I did it, I checked in with myself, and I asked, okay, well, wait a minute. Am I, why am I giving him these CDs? Am I giving him these CDs because, you know what, they've helped me so much, and I've learned so much from, from them, and I want him to recover as well? Or am I giving him the CDs so that he'll think, wow, that Randy sure is spiritual. Man, he sure has his finger on the pulse of everything that's recovery. And man, every time I listen to this CD, I'm going to think how great Randy is for giving them to me and how lucky I am to have a friend like him, you know. Seriously, I had to check my motives. Now, I'm happy to report that it was the former. You know, I really wanted to just give them to him unconditionally. But I'll tell you something else. About a couple weeks later, I was talking to him on the phone, and I was going to ask him, how do you like those CDs? And again, I checked my motives. And this time, the motive was, I want him to tell me how awesome those CDs are and how much they changed my life. So I didn't ask him. I just let it go. And if he wants to, if he wants to talk about them and have a nice discussion on recovery, no problem. But I knew that the reason why I was going to ask that was not a re- was not the motivation didn't serve the action, you know, and it just would have been reinforcing the all. So um, anyway, so this this program has allowed me to be awake in my life, and um, and I think the more and more I'm awake, the more and more I practice the way I want to live my life, I feel like the healthier I get, notwithstanding incidents like last night. Well, by the way, I, I was acting like my wife's AA sponsor with her, um, which did not go over very well. But that's me and my, in my disease. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I wanted to close, um, and I did this when it, a, a year ago when I told my story. I wanted to close with a poem. And um, it's not conference approved, but it's, I can't think of a better way to sum up how I want to live my life in my story from here on out um, in, in Al-Anon. And so I just wanted to share it with you guys. It's called What Will Matter. And it goes like this. Ready or not, someday it will all come to an end. There will be no more sunrises, no minutes, hours, or days. All the things you collected, whether treasured or forgotten, will pass to someone else. Your wealth, fame, and temporal power will shrivel to irrelevance. It will not matter what you owned or what you owed. Your grudges, resentments, frustrations, and jealousies will finally disappear. So, too, your hopes, ambitions, plans, and to-do lists will expire. The wins and losses that once seemed so important will fade away. It won't matter where you came from or what side of the tracks you lived on at the end. It won't matter whether you were beautiful or brilliant. Even your gender and skin color will be irrelevant. So what will matter? How will the value of your days be measured? What will matter is not what you bought, but what you built. Not what you got, but what you gave. What will matter is not your success, but your significance. What will matter is not what you learned, but what you taught. What will matter is every act of integrity, compassion, courage, or sacrifice that enriched, empowered, or encouraged others to emulate your example. What will matter is not your competence, but your character. What will matter is not how many people knew, people you knew, but how many people will feel a lasting loss when you're gone. What will matter is not your memories, but the memories of those who loved you. 
What will matter is how long you will be remembered, by whom and for what. Living a life that matter doesn't living excuse me, living a life that matters doesn't happen by accident. It's not a matter of circumstance, but of choice. Choose to live a life that matters. I made a choice to live a life that matters when I came into Al Anon. And I keep make I keep reinforcing that choice. Or I should say I make another choice each time I take an act of service. I keep making that choice again when I go to meetings. I keep making that choice when I choose to sponsor somebody. And I keep making that choice when I just show up here in, in, in Al-Anon in my way. Um, so I am so grateful and I'm so looking forward to keep, keep coming back in this program. Thanks again, everybody. I appreciate it.